Good evening and welcome to the Laugh at Monkey Music Show. Today we have on Michael Fremmer. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I am actually a big fan of you. I've been watching you for a very long time and your knowledge and your, your wealth of knowledge of, on, on music and audio and hi-fi and records is it dwarfs mine and musicology. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. I co-wrote and did voices on, a, on an animated film called Animal Olympics in 1980. So the other voices were Gilda Radner, Billy Crystal, and Harry Shearer, and me. So now they, they've all drifted off into obscurity, and I'm a huge star. <laughs> but, you know, the funny thing is, I, I'm the person who hired Harry Shearer for his first animated uh, voiceover work. Because, Are you serious? Yeah, and then he, then he ended up, you know, being The Simpsons, but I, I hired him first because I knew about him from an album called, the, the, was it The Credibility Gap? Yeah, he did a comedy album with, with, with Lenny and Squiggy, you know, Mike McKean. And right, the, before Spinal Tap, guys. Yeah, way in the 70s. And it, it is called, I think, The Credibility Gap. I could go find it in my room there. And, uh, and he did a hilarious impression of Johnny Carson. I mean, they did the whole Johnny Carson show. It's hilarious. So that's how he got hired. And then at that point, he was friends with, uh, with Billy Crystal. They're not friends anymore. And so he brought Billy along and said, you, you mind if Billy Crystal comes and does some? No, that's fine. And, um, you know, it's funny because I, this movie's from 1980. And just yesterday, I sent out a package. Some person sent me a letter and an right. envelope. And it had two slicks from the DVD of Animal Olympics. And he said, this is my favorite animated film when I was growing up. And I got Graham Gouldman, who did the music. You know, Graham Gouldman from 10CC yeah. wrote No Milk Today and Bus Stop for the Hollies, all these great songs. So I, we hired him to do the music. And that was also my choice. And uh, this guy got Graham Gouldman to sign one of the slicks. And he sent it to me to sign another one of the slicks. And I mailed it out yesterday. And at the same That's time, cool. two days before that, some guy in England contacted me. And he said... Uh, I'm in Manchester and we went over to Strawberry Studios and we got all of Graham Goodman's uh, recordings of the Adam Olympic soundtrack. We managed to get them and, you know, and I transferred, I don't have a 30 IPS machine. I've got a 15 IPS machine, but we digitized it and, you know, fixed the speed. The speed was off, but so this just happened. So this stuff just pays back dividends years later. So well, I did, you can I, probably understand that though, right? Because of your love for music though. Well, you feel the same way for other yeah. people. Yeah. And, and then I uh, supervised the, the uh, sound, the whole soundtrack to the movie Tron, the first Tron movie. So very cool. That's very those cool. Are two cool things that I did before getting cool? involved in the hi-fi business. Yeah. That's really interesting because you are one of the biggest names in it and most, the most visual in the hi-fi. Like you've created, you've kind of crafted your own position in your own career, huh? Like it wasn't no, like a... it's nothing. I, it's nothing that I, um, sat down and said, here's what I'm going to do. My goal, it was nothing like that. Right. I never, there are people that do that, I suppose, but I never did. Right. I just do what I do. And um, it, whatever, I never thought it would turn into something where people ask for my autograph for being a hi-fi reviewer, but they do. And, you know, I have a friend who's a, who's a surgeon. He writes for the Absolute Sound. And uh, we were at Capital Audio Fest together in November and we're talking and some guy comes up and he puts his hand on my shoulder and goes, Mikey, you've changed my life. And he turned and walked away. And the surgeon goes, damn, I'm a surgeon. No one's ever said that to me. Like, <laughs> and, you know, it, it is very rewarding that the way people uh, react to me, but it's nothing I, uh, I courted or, or expected. Right. 
Well, I mean, you you crafted it by doing your life, you know, kind of like kind of like Mr. Magoo, you know, everything's kind of coming down around you, and you're kind of just going along and doing your thing, and it works out. That's right, and that's the most rewarding thing, especially the vinyl thing. You know, when CDs came out and I heard them, and I I just thought they sounded terrible, and mm-hmm. and it to me it was like, well, this is not good sound. Let's not say it's good sound. Let's say it's a promising technology that's going to get better, and. Uh, and then it'll get be good sound because no new technology shows up great. Right, right. And digital certainly didn't. And engineers didn't know how to use Pro Tools at first. Now it's gotten really good. Uh, you know, if what we have now in streaming high resolution digital had been uh, digital in 1986, I wouldn't have gone on my high horse. I still, I still like records. I still think, you know, there's something about holding up a record and, you know, and taking it out of the jacket and having the liner notes and watching it spin on the turntable. There's something great about that. And, and I always said, you know, if young people uh, ever get to have that experience growing up in the, in the digital age, they, they, I think they'll want it. And that's what's happened. Everything I predicted, you know, I was on the Howard Stern show in 2001. And I, and I, I said, you know, Howard, vinyl is going to make a big comeback. And uh, he just mocked me and it was just fine. Fine. Being my well, yeah, it's, it's a good thing. And I was right. I said it. I was on the Today <laughs> Show in 1990 something with Brian Gumble, and I predicted <laughs> it. And you know, I all this stuff is around. People see this stuff, so it's it's very cool. Well, the, the fall of vinyl. I, I dig vinyl a lot too. I like it more. I'd rather listen to vinyl. I think it, and I talk about it a lot in the show, actually, with the artists because it's it's something you can hold. It's it's, it's memories. Sometimes when you you go, it's even best when you find records. Sometimes they have those weird smells. You don't know what it is. You still don't yeah. know what they are years later. You put a dryer sheet in it or something. You try cleaning them up. You try making them the treasures. It's a whole, yeah. it's a package, you know, the liner yes. notes. And it was before there were videos and you could read, you see pictures of the band on the bus. You're envisioning it in your head like a book. Of you know? course. It's a whole thing. Like I've got the first Queen album. Mm-hmm. I've got over there, the, the British version of it. And that was sent to me by Electra Records because I did the national radio spots for, for Queen for the first three albums and in that album is a letter from brian may a handwritten two-page letter from brian may telling me that my edits for the commercials are more interesting than their edits for the albums <laughs> swear to god it's in there you can even imagine awesome. being like a 20 20 something year old kid and getting that, that kind of thing and then and then it said uh signed brian may and he put queen in parenthesis in case i didn't know who he was <laughs> that's funny you know and honestly right the bigger the um, the stars are, and the more they, you, you, the harder to get to because of their handlers and the people. But when you talk to, talk about musicians that are larger, yeah. they're so down to earth, and a lot of times they don't assume who they are. Everyone knows who they are. I hear that all the time. Like, where, where you that letter? Here's the letter, and I really should put this under plastic or keep saying I'm going to do it. Right. I was going to say, why is not under frame or protected? Because I'm stupid. Okay, so there, you know, there you can see. Is that backwards to you or it look forwards to you? No, it's it's right. You got it right. Yeah, because to me it looks backwards, obviously. Yeah, no, it's... But he says, signed, <laughs> yeah, Brian May, Queen. It's a good handwriting. Yeah, and it's, it's from a hotel in uh, in the Netherlands. Well, actually, he, he, stole, he, stole the, uh, he stole the stationery because it has his home address there, 10 Queensgate, London. <laughs> now, this thing is starting to... I'm stupid. I, I got to do something with this. The, every time the air hits it, it goes, <laughs> you lose a little bit of it. I don't know who to go to to take it, to, to put it under plastic. Do you know who? 
I wouldn't know. I have a hard time with like collecting things and not collecting things. It's my internal struggle. Like I don't want to put it on display, display, but it means a lot to me as a special moment with something as much as it would be a family member or what else, you know what I mean? Whether you get records sent that are signed to you or books, but it's also collecting for me is kind of hard. And that's a good question for you. Like you have a lot of records and you listen to a lot of records. You're obviously, you have a beautiful sound system. I have a stupid number of records. I have a it's insane. What's you only seen part of it here? What is the gas? What do you think you have now? Sixteen or seventeen thousand. You know, wow. and it, and it's I have stacks and stacks of unlistened. It's actually like the Midas touch. You know, everything turns to gold. So I have more record. It's it's uncomfortable to have people send me records to review, and if I don't review yeah. them, it gets uncomfortable, and I can't keep up with it. So what I'm going to do is. You know, Rick Rubin said to me once, did you see uh, when, when Adele got her, her um, Grammy at one point, she got up and she was like, crying, and I want to thank Rick Rubin for giving me all this great advice and without him. So Rick Rubin said to me once, he said, you should do video record reviews. You're good on camera. Right, Just yeah. pull up the record and, t- and review it. Don't, don't write it. People like this. And I've never done that. For one reason, because because I like the written word for a review where you can really gather your thoughts and be more cogent rather than because I don't like to say this is a great record. You know, I want to be able to say more and I can say more uh, in in print than I can. But I'm going to have to do that because I have stacks of records here. Yeah, I, I think it'd be great and talk about. It. So I'm going to do that. You have a way of speaking that's very fun and very yeah. to the point. But doing it as a video, and you can also do it as a podcast. People would love to hear it in the car and listen to it and get inspired by the music. It's it's all different videos. I could do a podcast too. I've never done a podcast, and I really should do it. I've been it's on so other easy. podcasts. So easy. I can talk to them about it after. I'll talk all about it. Yeah, so, okay. What's really neat is um, with vinyl, I realized there's a certain point where vinyl kind of towards the end it started getting cheaper before it crashed out and CDs came in. Yeah. Do you think that's a big part of why it kind of also hurt itself because the records were getting kind of cruddy and the records are getting worse, but cassettes are what really killed vinyl. Right. Because cassettes were portable. Most people didn't care that much about sound quality and records were the only thing you could buy to play music. So that's what they were stuck with. And for most people, records were a pain in the neck. You had to mm-hmm. clean them and, you know, you had to keep the, the stylus clean and you to do, take care of them. You had to do certain things. Right, that's, work. That. that's why when you go to use record stores, well, not anymore, but when you went to use record stores, uh, when vinyl was going away, the records were trashed. These people didn't take care of them. They, they threw them around. They didn't, you know, and when cassettes came out, the, 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 the source was hidden in a piece in a plastic case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could, you could manhandle them pretty much and stick it in and it would play. Although if you were around for that period of time, you'd see yeah, it, tape, wrapped around, tape wrapped around light light posts and, you know. Always with a pencil. Anxiety yes. just thinking about it. And, the, and then this, you'd open it up. Once again, you, you lose the ceremony. Who could read, even my youngest 20-year-old eyes? I could not read a cassette. Flipped open 18 pages and the lyrics. It's just like. Yeah, it was bad. You know, but that's what, that, that beat out records. So and I, that, sure it is, yeah. When vinyl started to go out, the, like I said, the vinyl records did get weaker. They weren't made as well. I remember like the records, like when they were like my grandparents' records compared to the records that were in towards the end of the 70s were like floppy and, you know, they were really thin. Compared to the original vinyl were like thick. They're like weapons. It started getting bad in the early 70s, in the late 60s, actually. I mean, I, could, I remember when uh, records were 
tip-on jackets. So it was paper onto cardboard, beautiful mm -hmm. laminated. And then shore pack, the shore pack came. I could pull out a shore pack package, but it's where they print right on, on the paper that becomes the jacket. And then it gets glued in three parts, fold over, and they all came apart. Those things all came apart. It was horrible. And then the records inside got really floppy in the early 70s. Part of that was due to the oil embargo. And uh, so that, you know, PVC is made from oil. So mm -hmm. the oil got uh, costly. So they invented, you know, Dynaflex to make the records really thin. They could use less. But you know what? Those records can sound great, but they don't sound bad. You know, if I play you an original copy of, of Lou Reed's Transformer, which is pressed right. on the thin R RCA vinyl, it sounds incredible for whatever reason. You know? I'll bet everything sounds incredible on your system, though. I've seen videos of your system. It's insane. It's pretty insane. It's yeah. pretty. You want me to turn this around and see if you can Please see do. it? Please do. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, speakers... It's pretty messy right now. Let's wait a second. Let's see what you Oh, I just accidentally clicked on. Wait a second. I don't know if you had the same speaker. Do the same speakers you did in your video from a couple of years ago? It's. Well, these, yeah, these, so those are the speakers up there. Oh, those are beautiful. So those are the those are the Wilson XDXs. Those are nice. And I'm reviewing this. See this giant, this big uh, casket on the ground there. Yeah. The Neil, it's it's right under the Neil Young archive box there. Yeah. That's a 585 pound amplifier that, that I'm reviewing. Oh. Griffin uh, Griffin amplifier. So yeah, it's a it's an insane system, and it's really the most fun. And uh, you know, the people who hate it, they they look at the picture of it and they go, "Well, that can't sound very good. That giant speaker is stuffed into the corner of your room." And I say, "Yeah, it is, but it sounds great. I wouldn't have bought those speakers if it didn't sound great." Because you, you have a good ear, anyhow. I mean, very costly speakers, but you know, I I was the expert witness in the when when Quincy Jones sued the estate of Michael Jackson. Did you watch that video? That's one of my best. I did. Video. Yes, I did. That's gonna. That's probably like that, one that experience was one of the greatest experiences of my life. The pressure was intense and I came through and it was, I walked out of there saying, that's good. And so the money was great. I put that money away until something good came along. And, uh, and these speakers, they're just. Speakers. That video is probably full. I, I think I'd heard of you before, but I think that was my gateway drug into the world of microgrammar, you yeah. know, your audio. And next thing you know, I'm watching videos, you go into record plants. I mean, so you, you talk about not just sound, you sound quality, you, you um, audio gear, then you do records, different things about records and history of different like record labels. Yeah. So you're not just like one, one dimension, you know, you're, you're multidimensional and all your, everything encompasses records and sound and players. Yeah. And yet, you know, there are people that know more than I know about a lot of things in, in the vinyl world. And that's fine. You can't know everything. I got a 16 year old kid writing for me who I have to say at this point knows more about a lot of what went on in the 60s than I know. For one thing, I don't remember a lot of what went on in the 60s. Because <laughs> he I did it right. <laughs> but he, you know, he can, he can tell you now, he can go through. I was on the David Bowie tour. I was on the Ziggy Stardust tour in 72. You know, I traveled mm -hmm. with them on the, on the plane and I went to the, all the shows. I went to New York, the Carn, famous Carnegie Hall show, and in Boston and in Chicago and Detroit and sat with them in the plane. And this kid obviously wasn't born till 2000 or whatever. He can go through all the live Bowie albums and tell you which musician was on what drugs and why they didn't play well that night. He, he's just encyclopedic like that. He, he knows more about all the new 
uh, CD formats coming from Japan. There were all these different formats, CD formats from Japan. Really? It's more about the physical, how the CDs are manufactured. And, and they have different improved sound on some of them. I don't follow that because I'm not that much into CDs, but he knows all that stuff. He's going to yeah, He's going to do a story for me on all these different uh, Japanese-based CD formats. I, I don't know about it. Yeah, there's a certain point where it gets to be too much, though, for like at this point for people of our, our generation where you're like, ah, yes, you know, yeah, there's too much. Same with music. Out, yeah. It's like, and that's the problem you have there. I mean, you've got so much at this point. Memory you know. full, you know, like I'd rather listen to the kinks than some of the new stuff that's out now. Some of it's great. I listen to that, too. But, uh, you know, he's heavily invested in Father John Misty, who, you know, he, he told me about. He's really good. He is really good. But I still would rather listen to, you know, stuff from when I was his age. It's just the way it is. I go back in moods. I'm in a prog mood lately. I've been going back. I'm doing a lot of prog stuff. I think probably since I, when I had an interview with Jethro Tull and then Fish, I've been really doing a lot more prog listening lately, just in the mood. Yep. <laughs> phases. But it's old stuff. It's this, a bulk of my records are like, yes, Jethro Tull, um, yep. Zappa, as we were talking about before, sure. Beatles. Yeah. Um, I know you're a big Beatles fan, too. You know. Sure, I got to go to Abbey Road and listen to Beatles master tapes. I mean, how bad is that? That that's pretty awesome. These are some pretty things. I'm pretty. Uh, yeah, and you know, the, the story behind that is something that I tell young people now. I don't have to, I don't have to tell convince young people about vinyl anymore because they get it. But there mm-hmm. was a time when I like I would go to I went to the Princeton Record Exchange and there were were some young people there holding a Sufjan Stevens album uh, on vinyl, and I felt obliged to go over and say, you know that sounds better than the CD of it because I had the CD and she just looked at me and said, we know. And it was like, that's when I knew something was happening. What the foot? You know? But so in 1969, I moved to Boston and uh, I was going to law school and I walked down the block and there was a record store and I, I saw up on, it was, there were steps going up to get to the store. It was a corner store. And it must've been like a pharmacy back in the fifties. And at the top was a point of purchase cardboard display with a bunch of records. And the records were sealed in plastic, but not in shrink wrap like we have, but in the UK plastic style, which was like a a loosely fitting thing because they knew that they didn't want the records to get warped. And so I knew it was an import. And I had started collecting imports at that point. So I got excited and I walked up the top and it was Abbey Road. And it had come out like three, two or three weeks earlier in the UK. So the guy that bought the records for the store bought it from the UK and brought it there. And I was so excited to buy that copy, which I still have. And I can pull it out. It's still the best sounding <laughs> copy of, of Abbey Road that I've ever heard. And I played it for 60 years or whatever. And I ended up doing the radio commercials for that store. And um, the kid who brought that record into that box and brought it to that store, his name yeah. is Steve Berkowitz. He was Steve Berkowitz. You may know that name. Maybe you don't. Steve Berkowitz ended up working for Sony Legacy. He's in charge of the Dylan catalog and the Miles Davis catalog and a bunch of other catalogs in the reissue series. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, at Apple, you know, the Beatles Apple, right. they decided they were going to hire Steve Berkowitz to oversee the mono Beatles box. And so Steve Berkowitz said to them, why don't you invite Michael Fremer to come over to Abbey Road to watch us do this? So Steve Berkowitz put Abbey Road in 1969 in that record store. And then Steve Berkowitz in 2000 or whatever invited me to Abbey Road 
to see that. And the reason why they did that was because they read my kind of negative review of the stereo box set. Okay. Some of those records were okay, but a lot of them, you know, and that was a digitized uh, vinyl that was, you know, digitized at high resolution. And then they converted it to low resolution so that they could make CDs out of it. Mm-hmm. And it was done by committee. It wasn't like the vision of one person. And it just, it, it just, to me, it wasn't that good. So one day I got a call in, I guess, 2010. And the guy said, it's, I don't remember his name. He says, this is so-and-so from Abbey Road. And you know, we, we uh, the people read your, we read your write-up of the stereo box set and you weren't too enthusiastic about it. So we've decided to do the mono box set from tape, all analog, the way you suggest it should be done. So how would you like to come uh, and watch us do it? <laughs> it was like, yeah, and it was great. It was just, you know, I had lunch with awesome. John Martin and, and, you know, it was uh, great. That, that is awesome. So that's, that's like history right there. I mean, that is insane. Yeah. So let me ask you this though, the, the, the last release, the, the get back doc, how awesome. You know, I like, I like what Giles has done with those reissues. They're very good. Um, if you're only, if you had only heard, the American pressing of that stuff and the American mm-hmm. pressing of Abbey Road and the American pressing of the White Album. Um, this is a big improvement in, in most ways yeah. for various reasons. But I still prefer my original British pressings of, of the White Album and, and all of those records. They just have a certain sound. And to me, my brain is locked onto them. But the reissues, yeah. you know, the remixes are great, except the only bad remix they did was... Um, the uh, all things must pass that just was a, a, a mistake and i don't know what happened because the same guy did the john lennon imagine and all the other uh, stuff he remixed those those came out good um but all things must pass was was a disaster just sonic disaster and it's interesting because i don't know whether you saw this before i got pulled up but bobby whitlock you know who played on that record mm-hmm. did a youtube video and and just ripped it to shreds and basically mm-hmm. much more nasty than I was and said exactly <laughs> what I said. And he was, he played on the record. So he has some understanding of what went on and right. it was just a misfire and, and they should just take the tapes and, and redo it. And I told uh, um, the head of Apple Corps, who I know, uh, I said, you know, you should, you should do the Beatle catalog in stereo over again, like you did the mono set take the tapes out. They're still in great shape. And yeah, there's mistakes on them. You can hear the mistakes like on, on rubber soul. You can hear like a voice suddenly pop over to one channel. Right. And, and George Martin fixed, fixed some of that on the CD reissues. He remixed those things for stereo CDs and it, it didn't come out well. He didn't, he, I'm sorry. He did not do a good job. They should have just left it the way it was. And hopefully at some point they'll do that again. And hopefully at some point they'll, they'll reissue the mono box set, which is not in print anymore. It's crazy. The mono box set is not in print anymore. And it's so like, is it no demand for it. I mean, is that, it's a huge demand for it. It goes to like thousands of dollars. Now they just said, well, it, it, it costs too much to produce. We weren't making any money. So raise the price and then make money. People want that box. That's interesting though. Cause like, would you listen? So you have both. You listen to mono and, and stereo. Do you go back and forth listening to things like that? I would have a hard time to listen to just mono. Maybe just because when I started listening to music, it's never been just mono. Well, the original 
first bunch of records were way better in mono. Okay. You know, like the first few albums were meant for mono. So the vocals are on one channel, the instrumentals are on the other channel. And the reason they did that was then after the recording in post-production, they could adjust the level of the two and have and like the balance they got. Right. So to release it in stereo, where the vocals are here and the music is over there, that's not really satisfying. That's stereo. And that happened in the jazz world too. You know, I mean, I was, when stereo came out, I was so into it that to be able to hear different things out of different speakers, that is the coolest shit. Oh my God. And I never even, my brain didn't really register what was going on. So this is a very famous record. I have it here, but I, uh, let's wait. It's called um, Art, well, Art Pepper Meets the Rhythm Section. It's a contemporary record album. So you let's play that record. And the rhythm section is on one channel and Art Pepper is on the other channel. So really, Art Pepper never meets the rhythm section <laughs> unless you flip the mono switch and then he meets them. So, you know, the older I got, the more sophisticated my listening, the more I realized a lot of these so-called stereo records are not really stereo. Right. They're just mono thing and a lot of the atlantic jazz records from the early days of stereo were that way too where you hear all these musicians clustered in that channel and then other musicians clustered in that channel and maybe if you were lucky there was a piano and a bass in the middle but it, it's not satisfying and when you hear the mono mix of that which is what the, the record was supposed to be it's okay. much more satisfying right that, that's a good point i mean because you know like say you're back in the day you hook up, you, you hook up your stereo wrong you put on like a queen or vegan halen albums you'll know very fast it's not really what true stereo is it's not because you just won't hear half the songs because they'll put it in different things so it's not a true but at know. least those at least those were pan potted to produce to produce a nice spread you yeah. know because they have 30 tracks 24 tracks to work with those are okay it's the ones where they had to do it on four tracks where it's a cluster over here and a cluster yeah. over there, or like with the Beatles where they had, a, they used to have three of the tracks. Then they mixed that down to one track. Then they reused the three tracks then they mixed. And that's why those early Beatle albums have issues mm -hmm. because what you're hearing is uh, m many generations down still came out great. Unbelievably. Uh, so when the, when they did the remixes, they went back to the stems because EMI was smart and realized the Beatles were like everything, every scrap of tape was valuable. So those stems yeah. are the first generation. And so Giles was able to go back and remix and not have to suffer the, the problems of mixing it down to one channel. That's why if you listen to the early stereo Beatle albums, you'll hear all of a sudden, you know, George is over on, here comes the sun, George is over there. Why is he there? It should be in the middle. Well, they had to put him there because it was one of those cases where they had to do a premix to do more. And so on, on the remix, there are a lot of improvements to the mix. It makes a lot more sense. So actually, what's your feeling on the new Atmos? Mm, I don't like that. No, true that Atmos, though. I mean, not, not, here's, just put a pin on this one. Apple is doing it, where they're taking Atmos mixes that aren't true Atmoses, and it's not true to the producer. It looks like the other producer did it. It's just a weird, fake version of Atmos. I'm talking like a real version of Atmos. I still no. don't like it. I don't, I think um, rock and roll, pop music, I don't like surround sound for it. No matter, you know, the early surround sound was ridiculous. I don't want to hear the drummer here and the background chicks over there. And, you know, because you know what that is? It's just mono again. It's the same crap where you had 
all the music there and this vocals here. So now they're doing the same, that kind of crap and putting it in, in five channels. So it's even worse because it's five disconnected channels and I don't like that. If it's classical music, if it's a live concert, yeah, because then you can get the space, mm -hmm. the actual space that the music is played in, and that's fantastic. But how big is that? It's not very big. You well, know, the technology is going like to catch up to it. You know, I don't like all this processing. I, I just don't like it. But I, you know, that's just me. Like there, there was a at uh, at the Exponent show in Chicago, they had a demo of um, Rocket Man by Elton John mixed mm -hmm. to Dolby Atmos in five chan you know, five point one channels, and I thought it sounded horrible. It was all disconnected, all discombobulated. And when you put the vocal through the center channel speaker, which is never the same as the big right. left and right speaker, it's just coming out of this little box. And it, I, I don't like it. And I I've don't heard, like Apple forcing it on people because that's what's happening. They're forcing well, it. Right. The mixing in it is really bad. And some songs, I actually, when I first this came out, I knew none of, none of those recorded design for that. They just that's put right. in that, which is always bad to do. But right. first thing I did is I went and listened to Beatles. I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear. I listened, and I thought classical pulled it off the best. I also like classical music, and I like rock. I like everything. Yeah. But I thought it was the most forgiving of forcing Atmos on it, even though it wasn't an Atmos recording, because it's classical and it has right a lot of space, a lot of instruments. Right. Some of the rock sounded good. Some of the Beatles sounded good because I think Beatles done right is great with a lot of space because each each thing is so special. Yeah. I've heard Atmos recordings done, recorded as supposed to be for Atmos. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. But you got to do it in mind when you're recording it, and you got to do it in mind for the rest of the world. It's used to hearing stereo. Right. There's more to it than just making it that. And I don't think Atmos is for every, every kind of music or for every artist either. Exactly. Exactly. You know? MQA, though, I, I like. I don't know why there's even any kind of uh, controversy over MQA. You know, MQA is a process where they can pack uh, a high-resolution file, a 192, up to 192 24-bit file, into a CD resolution file. So you okay. can stream, you can stream it. And if you have an MTA MQA decoder, it will unpack it to, to higher resolution. If you don't, it'll be a 16 bit 44. And it's, it's great. Some people think they can hear it. And there's another aspect of it that's even cooler is that the guy that invented this, who's a genius, Bob Stewart, he used to work for Meridian. So the early CDs, when they would take analog recordings and make CDs out of them, they were just horrible. Yeah. So if you listen to um, Keith Jarrett's The Colon Concert, very famous record, ECM recording, and you have the record, it's an incredible live recording. And you hear, you, you see in space Keith Jarrett's piano, and you, you hear him playing, and then you see the space on the stage around him, and then you hear the reverb off the back wall of the, you know, of the stage, and, and you mm -hmm. get the sense of three-dimensionality in the picture. When it came out on CD, all that was lost. It was like a jumble. You couldn't see any of that stuff. It was like just like this mess. And so the reason why that happened to a great degree was that the A to D converters in the early days had very bad filters in them. And the filter would ring and completely upset the, the, the phase relationship in, that's built into the recording. And so uh, Bob Stewart, if he knew what the A to D converter was used to make the digital uh, file, he can go back and what he calls de-blur the file and reverse the negative aspect of the filter that was used you know, to oh, wow. digitize the signal. And he brought some of these files to a CES about 10 years ago, I guess, 
including that one, because I had that record and yeah. the record is three dimensional. And I, I got the CD and it was like crap. And he played the file where he de-blurred the recording. And it was three dimensional and okay. you could hear the piano in space and you could hear the reverb off the sounding board of his piano. And then you could hear the reverb in the back wall of, of the space and then hear the, the space all around. It was great. And he does that even with even with new recordings, with, with much better uh, A to D converters, he can go in and even improve those. Wow. But people that's really cool. have a problem with it for some reason. I don't know why. I didn't know that's really cool. Well, I want to thank you for just, I wanted to just watch a little of your time. I do want to end on one question on, uh, for this and make a comment. People that don't have super high-end cleaners, you've got some really great cleaners that you do for cleaning records. Yeah. Entry-level people are, people don't have super, you know, a few of us have like a couple hundred records, whatever. Right. What do you say is the best way of cleaning? Because, you know, people don't know. They just see these stupid things. They'll see that, you know, lighter fluid cleaning and things like that would just make my heart cringe. You know, you, you know who uses lighter fluid? Uh, unscrupulous dealers, record dealers use lighter fluid because it shines up the record. Right. It also melts. It's bad. It's a very bad thing. Which is why I just wanted to bring it up. I know I wanted to talk about it for a minute so people are watching. Please be aware of that. What is yeah. a good way so, that people can economically do it? Very basic, basic, really good cleaning system is the spin clean, mm -hmm. uh, which is it's a rotary thing. And you put special fluid in, in the vat. And then yep. you put the record and you spin it by hand. And then uh, you take the record out and you clean it with a microfiber cloth, dry it with a microfiber yep. cloth. And that works. It's surprisingly well. I've reviewed that. It's like $89. Okay. And it's a really good investment. And, and you really should do, you do a, wet, a wet cleaning of your record. Even brand new records. People don't record, you know, record pressing plants are not clean rooms. CDs are made in mm -hmm. clean rooms. Records are made in dirty rooms. So it's a good thing to do. If you can go one step up from that, um, there are some really good um, vacuum-based machines that are like four hundred dollars. That may be getting too much, but that's if you're buying. No, that's a fair price. It depends on your level of. of that, those are still reasonable prices for. Yeah. There's a project one that's four hundred and something dollars. There's an Okinoki one that's around that much money, and also a lot of the people that are buying these cavitation-based machines, you know, mm -hmm. which cleans records the way you go to a jeweler and they throw it right. into a vat and it cleans it with micro bubbles uh they're selling off their vacuum machines and you can find them on on ebay and other places for a couple hundred bucks like the old vpis uh and there's a bunch of other brands nitty-gritty but it's worth it to clean if you're spending oh. records now are like 30 or 40 bucks you're buying you're already spending exactly. 30 bucks on something that you want to last for 30 40 50 60 years they're gonna outlive you why would you not want to have something to clean it that costs only two or three times the price that you use like, all the time when people say oh you clean records it's like Look, I'm going to clean my glasses. Oh, you can, can clean, clean glasses? glasses? I had no idea. And if that you makes you crazy. I want to know how cleaning people's glasses. <laughs> that makes you crazy. Cleaning records and cleaning your stylus will also lead to the records lasting indefinitely and the stylus lasting way longer because the dirt mm -hmm. turns into grit and the stylus goes through at high, high temperature is created in the groove. So high temperature and grease and dirt adheres to the stylus and then it dries on the stylus and the shape of the stylus then becomes something other than what it's supposed to be. So after a short period of time, people say, my records aren't sounding so good anymore. When's the last time you clean your stylus? Oh, how do you do that? You, know, you have to learn the basics of this to do it right. And if you learn the basics and just follow the basics, I'm telling you, I can pull out records here that I've played for 60 years 
and they still sound fantastic and better than any digital version that there is. Do you still have, I know you've talked about, you have a, um, you, you did a CD of setting up a record player. I, I've never actually seen it. Does it talk it's about a, other stuff too? Yeah, it's a DVD. I made a DVD, DVD. called, and it, it's, uh, it's Michael, 21st Century Vinyl, Michael Fermer's Practical Guide to, to Turntable Setup. And I did that over 10 years ago. And um, when I did it, I said, I called up a, a constructional DVD expert and I said, so I'm making an instructional DVD. What, you know, what's the shelf life and, um, and, how, and, you know, how much you can expect to sell. And he said, well, if, if you're Jane, if you're not, unless, unless you're Jane Fonda doing a workout video, most of these things have a shelf life of like three or four years and you, you can sell a couple of thousand, 3000. That's pretty much the average. What's your subject matter? Uh, it's how to set up a turntable because Okay, I take it back. Everything I said, it's like two years, 2,000 copies. I don't know why you're doing that, but so I did it on that basis. And uh, it still sells. I still get a check every month for like three, $400. That's good. And I made my money back pretty quick. I've, I've made a lot, a lot of money on this thing. And it's still, sells. it's kind of outdated now in the sense that things have changed somewhat. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I tell people, watch the video and then uh, you can go on, onto my channel and you can go on my YouTube channel and I show updates of other things. It's still, it's still worth watching. So can they buy that? Where can they, where can they order it? Do you want to get the CD? That's on Amazon. Uh, it's on, okay. Yeah. Acoustic yeah. sounds type my name yeah. in and you'll, you know, and you'll get that. And Excellent. then, you know, there's a great MQA joke that I tell that it's great at high fights. Now that I've told you what MQA is, how it un- unpacks yes. high resolution. They also have MQA CDs where if you have, if you have a, the right CD player, you put a CD in and it will unpack a high resolution file. You know, so the joke I told is I went to the to England, I got COVID, which I did, and I got the worst variant. I got COVID MQA. You get COVID and it unpacks diphtheria and Peroni's disease in your body. <laughs> and I said, but it's okay, it's all straightened out now. <laughs> That's a if you don't know what high MQA is, it's not funny. And if you don't know what Peroni's disease is, it's I also know. not funny. But if you know what those are, it's very funny. It's a good joke. Well, it's, a pretty, it's a really high-end joke. It's a hi-fi joke. It really is a high-end <laughs> yes, joke. It is. It is well, a I do want to thank you. This has been awesome. I want to encourage people to check you out, check out your videos. You don't have to be even a record collector or, or anything. You're very entertaining. You, you little stories, you little jokes. It's like they're right in a room with you. It's real. I did stand up comedy. You know, I did stand up comedy in the 70s. So that makes sense. That thing. I I played Max's Kansas City. You know, Max's Kansas City. I played Max's Kansas City twice. And, and, you know, that's not a comedy club (laughs) by any means. And I went there because I I used, played my guitar and I did impressions of rock stars and I I did a whole parody of MTV and, Mm -hmm. and they loved it and they invited me back. So they invited me back and I said, can my parents come? So my parents went, you know, at that point in time, they were very old. Well, no, they're pro- I'm probably older now than they were, which is scary. But, you know, they were like the Floridian. They were like Jerry Seinfeld's parents. But old old showed- back then, it's different old now than old now, though. Something That's happened. Right. That's right. And they showed up. My father had the white, big white belt and the white shoes and the, 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 the Inkalore shirt, all different colors and and they sat in the back and I went through this whole, and you know what? The people, that, like you were talking about musicians you know, being right. really nice, the more famous they are, mm-hmm. the nicer they are. Um, they, the, 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 the goth dressed crazy people, you know, all in black with rings yep. in their nose. They were so nice to my parents. It was, 
And my parents learned a lesson in don't judge people by what they look yeah. like. It, it was just a great experience. You know? That's a good point. And that's a good point for everybody. Actually, I ended that thought because like, you've talked to people, I've talked to a lot of people on the show and almost the bigger the musicians, the more they've been out. There's a reason why they're around so long. You know, that's right. they're kind. They, they, they're just like everybody else, you know, they just write awesome music or they, they have excellent technology. They're great inventors. But most of them are the salt of the earth. It's actually the younger ones or newer to the business are about what are your numbers? What are that? And I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like a hundred million albums. And they don't even ask for that kind of stuff. So look at everybody with open eyes. I mean, you know. You're right. You know, when I did, I did tours of the country for, um, for TDK, you know, they, they, they used to make cassettes and then they oh, make yeah. blank, blank CDs. So the first tour was how to convert your vinyl to cassette. So you could take your vinyl on the road. And this was in yeah. the early, early, late eighties, early nineties. And cause vinyl was going away and I would travel around the country. And when I did small market, local TV shows, which most mm -hmm. of them don't have it anymore. They had small, the people were like, Oh yeah, the record thing, come on over here. And then at the end of the tour, I did the today show and, and Brian Gumble was so nice. I was so nervous. He was so nice. And I was nervous because one of the, the deals that I had to do with TDK, we'll, we'll put you on this tour and you have to hold up a, a TDK cassette. I said, well, okay, but I'm a journalist. I will hold it up. I will not say use TDK cassettes. I can't do that. I will say, uh, use a high quality cassette. Don't use a bargain cassette. Use a high quality cassette like this TDK. I'll do that. And they said, okay, in the magazine I was writing for said, that's okay too. So I would do that. And then I got to the Today Show and the, the, producer of the segment said, look, this is the Today Show, and the Today Show is a product of NBC News. You cannot hold up that tape and say, even say, like TDK. You cannot do that. And the TDK publicist said, you must do that. So I was like, so conflicted going into that. Uh, and I sat there, and then you know, and it was Deborah Norville on one side, and Brian Gumbel on the other side. And they're talking to me, and then I got to the point where it was like, um, and so when you make these, uh, when you make these cassettes, be sure to use a good branded cassette. Like TDK, I held it up. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. Like, oh, my hand went up. It was like it was Dr. Strangelove, you know? And, <laughs> and I did it and nothing happened. And, and in fact, it went so well that when we went to the commercial break, Brian said, hey, hang around. Let's talk about Miles Davis and Kind of Blue because I brought a, I transcribed Kind of Blue from my turntable, which I started yeah. a good turntable back then, to, to, to a cassette. And it still sounded fantastic over the television. And he said, let's talk more about vinyl. And so I got to go back on and, and talk more about vinyl. So it, it was cool. That's cool. But that's really, I want to thank you, man, for being on the yeah. show. This has been really good. Sure, thank you. sure. It's my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Okay. Uh,